Today we're in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. This is what God's word says. Now they were bringing even infants to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we ask now that as we have opened your word, that by your spirit you would soften our hearts, that by faith we might receive the truth that you have given to us, the very living truth himself, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, for whose sake and in his name we pray. Amen. We come this morning to this much-beloved passage of Jesus welcoming the little children. And I remember growing up seeing this scene depicted in one of those children's Bibles that I had, the kind that has mostly pictures and not too many words. Maybe you had one too. Now, I like children's Bibles in general. Uh, They can be helpful and imaginative, but sometimes they can be a little bit too imaginative and visually portray a passage in a way uh, in an interpretive way that it's not entirely accurate to the text. For instance, some of you have heard me talk about Adam and Eve in the garden falling into temptation and how we all assume, because these picture Bibles or even paintings always seem to depict as them eating an apple. When in fact, the biblical text simply says that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For all we know, it could have been a banana. Or something else, which is why I like to say uh, Adam and Eve ate the banana, just to challenge conventional thinking and get us to look more carefully at the biblical text. It could have been a banana. It could have been a grape. It could have been a plum. It could have been a durian. Uh, Okay. Uh, Not a durian. That thing smells like uh, Sheol and death. They wouldn't have been tempted by that. But, you know, in the same way, this passage of Jesus welcoming the children is sometimes portrayed, at least it did in my children's Bible, of Jesus having a grand old time with what looks to be these wonderful little first and second graders. Uh, A little girl with ponytails is sitting on Jesus' lap laughing, and a little boy with a soccer ball is right in front of Jesus, happy and excited, and if he had a tail, he would be wagging it. Uh, And Jesus is just chortling into the air like a proud uncle, and everyone is watching, bustling with excitement and all the warm fuzzies. Now, as nice as that picture is, it needs some fine-tuning with what actually happened. Because it may be that the illustrator was only acquainted with Matthew and Mark's accounts in which they used the general word for children, that they were bringing children to him. But Luke here specifies, as you've noticed, uh, he specifies for us what kind of children were being brought to Jesus. In verse 15, he says that they were infants. We're talking about newborn babies. Months old, perhaps even weeks old. And so the scene is not so much one that looks like a Wednesday morning at VBS camp, but it's much closer to what looks like a pediatrician's office with anxious new parents bringing their swaddled baby born just last week, hoping and wondering if everything is okay. In fact, it says that the crowds were bringing these infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And Matthew 19.13 elaborates that it was so that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. 
Why? Well, probably because back then, the infant mortality rate was around 50%. Meaning every other baby didn't make it to his or her first birthday. And so here were these anxious parents asking Jesus to bless these babies so as to protect them. And so again, here we have a more accurate depiction of this scene now. Frail little infants were being brought to Jesus. And it was about these that Jesus said, to such belongs the kingdom of God. You must receive the kingdom like such a child, a newborn infant. Now, what is it about little babies that prompts Jesus to say something like this? Why is it the infant of all people, even set apart from precious second graders, that serves as the model candidate for entering into God's kingdom? It's because they have nothing to offer to anyone. Infants are by nature in a position of helplessly needing to receive everything. They can't even hold their heads up until they're several months old because their necks are too weak. They can't do anything. They need to receive everything. They have nothing. And in a practical sense, they are nothing. Not in terms of human dignity, but simply pragmatically speaking. They can't contribute anything to anyone. They need everything to be given to them. And this, my friends, is precisely the gospel. That it is entirely a receiving. Helpless, impotent sinners receiving everything from the gracious and merciful God who is the all-sufficient Father who has given everything in Jesus Christ. And unless you humble yourself like an infant and receive his gift of salvation with zero contribution of your own efforts, you cannot enter his kingdom. Now, as you can tell, especially if you were here last week, this passage is intentionally placed here by Luke because it's related to what came just before. That the self-righteous Pharisee, the self-sufficient, was not justified in God's sight. He prayed, oh God, I thank you that I am like this and I'm not like that. Look at what I have done. Look at what I do for you, so on and so forth. But it was the one who saw himself, the tax collector, a sinner, who humbly asked God to give him mercy and forgiveness. And such a one will be declared righteous by God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners. And here, let's ask the question, What did the tax collector have to offer to God? But only his unclean, sinful self brought to him. What vow did he make in his prayer, promising, Oh God, if you forgive me, I will do great things for you. There was nothing of that sort. He had nothing to give to God. And he knew it, he acknowledged it. But friends, that's what's precious to God, you see. As though we were little infants in his arms, only able to receive. That's gospel salvation. And that's why Jesus says what he says, particularly about newborn babies. It's all to show how much God loves to save those who have absolutely nothing to offer to him whatsoever. 
That's the point. He is perfectly pleased to welcome empty-handed sinners into his kingdom. In fact, only those who know that they have nothing to bring to God may come and receive everything from God. What the world despises, God embraces because it magnifies his glory. He needs nothing from man, but rather he is the giver of life and breath and everything that is found in Jesus Christ. And actually, that was the whole issue that prompted Jesus' words in the first place. Verse 15 tells us that when the disciples saw the crowds bringing the infants to him, asking him to lay hands on them, the disciples rebuked the parents. Well, I, I presume it was the parents, it doesn't say, but I mean, if it wasn't the parents, we have a whole other set of issues. We've got random strangers snatching babies and bringing them to Jesus. No, it was the parents. But the reason why the disciples rebuked the parents was not because they personally disliked babies. But it was because back then, babies and infants were viewed as insignificant because they were useless in a practical sense. And so they were, the disciples were, in effect, trying to protect Jesus' time. You know, people today have all kinds of opinions on babies. Oh, they're cute, they're sweet, they're fun, they're loud. They're a nuisance all over the range. But in Jesus' day, in that time, that culture, Jewish society as a whole had a consensus of opinion on children, which is that they were a waste of time. It's not necessarily that they hated children or that kids were unloved by their families, but it was that children were unimportant to a society that valued productivity and capability. And so from that perspective, they saw children as being unable to bring anything to the table. Nothing to offer to society. No contribution they could make to the economy. And so until they grow up and actually prove themselves useful. Until then, sensible adults should not pay much attention to them. In fact, it was a common saying among the rabbis at the time that sleeping in lazily being a drunkard midday and conversing with children were all in the same category of what would destroy a man and ruin his life. It's kind of drastic, but that's how they thought. And if that's what they thought of children in general, how much more newborn infants? They were practically the uttermost in worthlessness. Again, not essentially, not ontologically in terms of human dignity and worth, but purely practically speaking. And so the disciples who were trying to manage this bustling crowd, all of whom, everybody wanted to come near to Jesus, when they saw the babies, the the disciples said, no, 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 sorry. The the Lord definitely can't tend to them. I mean, there's so many people, don't you see? We got to set up a triage of some sort. I mean, there's so many people. We have to pick out the select few most worth his time. And so, I don't know, not, not the baby, maybe, maybe hey, what do you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a guy over there, he's a rich young ruler, he's next in line. No, I mean, literally, look at, look at the text, the, the next guy up is a rich, rich ruler, in verse 18. And so they, they look at him, I don't, know, I don't know if the rich young ruler actually had to interact with the disciples before he came to Jesus, he may have just come straight to Jesus, but in any case, imagine that if he did have to go through the bodyguards of the disciples, as it were, they would have said, oh, yeah, you know what? This will be a good meeting. 
What a, what a boon for the kingdom of God he will be. We, we, need, we have to get someone like him to join us. I mean, he's, he's well-studied. He's influential. He, he, he seems like he's really interested in the Bible. He could reach a lot of people from his position of, of authority and, and riches and wealth. We, and, we, you know, we really need a new church building. And, you know, his first name is Rich. His last name is Young Ruler. He, he can be of help to us. Uh, we, we, we need to bring this man to Jesus. Sorry, no time for the crying babies. Because what can they do for Jesus? Nothing. And that's the point. God does not save anyone because he needs them for anything. And besides, what did the eminent, respectable, young ruler end up doing? He walked away from Jesus. He walked away from the kingdom of God because he was self-sufficient. He had everything already. And he wasn't interested in receiving what Jesus was giving to him. God does not save anyone because he needs them for anything. But the gospel is God giving to worthless sinners everything simply because it pleases him to do so. And those who humbly recognize that they can only receive what he graciously gives, they are given everything. You know, as the years go by, I find myself increasingly sensitive to maintaining and safeguarding the pure, unadulterated gospel. And I think that as the church, we need to be careful in how we preach the gospel. Because even with the best of intentions, we may end up sometimes shrouding the goodness of God and the freeness of his love and thus unintentionally hindering people from coming to Jesus. And we can do that if we, in any way, remotely suggest that you must be something first in order to come to Christ. You must rid yourself of sin in order to come to Christ. You must prove your worth before God in order to come to Him. You must demonstrate that you will be a promising, genuine disciple in order to follow Jesus. You must prove your Christianity in order to receive the assurance of his love for you in Christ. And all of these things are putting conditions and price tags on what is truly the free gift of the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you do not belong to Jesus Christ by faith, make no mistake, you are a guilty sinner before God. No matter what you think about yourself, whether you think you're a good person or you think you're a terrible person, even if you think you're a terrible person, your estimation of yourself is still too high compared to the reality of your sin and iniquity before God. No one is righteous in God's sight before his perfectly pure eyes. And as sinners, we are all rightfully condemned forever according to God's perfect justice. And so you have nothing to offer him to win back his approval in any measure. And any attempt to do so, you will only be attempting to offer with your unclean hands, which will only serve as a perpetual reminder of the judgment that is owed to you. 
But what has God done for sinners like you and me? He sent Jesus Christ, his son, to utterly rescue us. And by that I mean, he did everything. He lived a life of sinless perfection, of perfect righteousness in the place of sinners that he came to save. He, he suffered and died the death of a guilty sinner. Though he had no sin, there was no deceit in his mouth. He took upon himself the full eternal wrath of God destined for sinners. For the sake of those he came to save, he hung there on the cross, bearing all of our iniquity and uncleanness. And he rose from the dead on the third day to prove that he really is a son of God. And having completed the work of salvation, he now says to everyone, come to me. Let the sinners come to me. Just confess your sin. Put your trust in me. I am sufficient. Put your trust in all that I have done. And all that I am will be given to you. You see, Jesus has done everything so that sinners like us can just come to him without any hindrances or conditions to be met. Are you overwhelmed by the sin in your life, in your heart? Do you feel that you are too enslaved to sin to be found in Christ? Why don't you just cry out to him? You can't unshackle yourself. But when you call out to him, then he can and will set the prisoner free. Don't think that you must first deal with all your sin in order to be received by him. Confess your sin, come to him, and trust him to deal with it. Not only to forgive you, but to supernaturally enable you to fight it and overcome it throughout your life. But you'll never know that enabling power until you come to him first. Is your life a stinking mess? Come to him first. Throw yourself upon him. And just confess to him that you're a terrible ruler of your own life. Rest your trust in him to rule over you. And then see how he begins to govern you according to his good and perfect will. And brings order and life into the chaos of the dark and formless void that is your life. Do you feel that you're beyond saving because you have no genuine love for God and you can't imagine how you could possibly muster that up? Look, the solution is not for you to find some way to produce that in yourself and then present yourself to him as a great lover of God. No, just confess your loveless heart to him. How hopelessly ruined you feel yourself to be. Just come to Christ as you are with your callous and lifeless heart and let him be the one to figure out how to breathe new life into you and continue to sanctify you. You see, Jesus is saying, let them all come to me. Those who have nothing to bring to the table. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. I have come not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. I have come not for the healthy, but the sick. The worthless are precious in his sight. 
They are fully permitted to be brought to Christ and receive his touch of love and tender affection, to receive his blessing, to receive all of him, because this is the gospel of God's glory as our all-sufficient, our soul-sufficient Savior. He has come to give and to give and to give from the infinite fount of the riches of his grace. And there is nothing you need to do to demonstrate first your fitness for receiving Christ. You just need to receive him, period. And Christian, the same goes for you and me. Now that we are in Christ, it's not as though these things change in any way. Because we will always, forever, remain in the position of receiving from him, of needing to receive. When you repented and put your trust in Christ for salvation, what you had done by the grace of God was humble yourself like an infant and helplessly receive everything from him, the free gift of the Father's love through Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the case, how does it make any sense whatsoever that Now that you are his, it would somehow please God for you to elevate yourself to the position of now being the one to give something to God as though you had something to give to him that wasn't already his to begin with. Is God intending on saving sinners who humble themselves and expecting them to live the rest of their lives proud, doing all things by themselves? Apart from him, they can do everything. Now look, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting some passive, casual Christian life that has no thought of pursuing God's will and wholeheartedly living for his glory. But I'm addressing the fundamental paradigm of Christian living. The mindset that we tend to fall into, whereby we start to think that God is happier to welcome us if we have done something good for him. If we have presented ourselves as an excellent servant of of his kingdom that week, as worthy workmen. Or on the flip side of that coin, how often do we hinder ourselves from approaching him and enjoying fellowship with him? Because we feel like we failed him in some way. And we didn't meet his expectations or, or goals. And regardless of whether it's in a positive or negative sense, both stem from an underlying mindset as though we had entered into a business relationship with God, that he has given us something. And the relationship, therefore, henceforth, stands insofar as we are able to bring something back to him and put something on the table and uphold our end of the bargain. And in so doing, we view God wrongly because he has revealed himself, not as a businessman, but as a father who has adopted frail little orphans, infant orphans like us. And he is eternally our father. He is the one who provides. He is the one who will always give, the one who will always bestow, the one who will always uphold. And it will always be that way, never to change. Have you been discouraged by your sinfulness lately? You sometimes feel like a worthless Christian? Well, first of all, welcome to the club. It's about time you showed up. And secondly, if that's how you feel, then all the more, 
Go to Christ. Seek his face. And receive from him what you need, what you have always needed, and what you will always need. The grace of his forbearance, patience, and love. Why do you insist on figuring things out first and trying to ensure that you're more presentable to him? You know how grieved he is when any of his children are hindered from coming to him for any reason. In fact, in Mark's account, in chapter 10, verse 14 of his gospel, he includes this detail that when Jesus saw the disciples rebuking uh, the, the, the children, the infants, or r- rather the parents, and, and keeping the infants from him, it says that Jesus was indignant when he saw it. He was indignant. What an illustrative word to reveal the heart of Christ. That as he was seeing what was going on, and the mindset, the paradigm by which People were operating. His reaction was, no, 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 you've got it so wrong. That's what it means to be indignant, isn't it? This is so wrong. That's not what I'm like. Let them come to me freely. Do not hinder them. I know they have nothing to give to me and that's the point. That's why I love them. And so even now and forever, the Lord is indignant at anything or anyone that gives the impression that his children must prove themselves worthy before approaching him. Because, I mean, how how anti-gospel is that? Once his child, always his child, and will always need to be the one to receive from him what you have never deserved, nor ever will. That's the grace of God. And really, that's the heart of a parent, isn't it? Even we, as sinful, fallen, imperfect, finite, earthly parents, with our children, we will never never go away from the mindset of, no, I am here to provide for you. I learned that from my parents. When I was getting a little bit older, I started to, you know, Act more like an adult. No, I don't need this from you. I don't need that from you. And they said, son, you don't understand. We will always be the ones to want to give to you. And if we who are evil can do that, how much more God? You know, I've noticed something that tends to happen amongst Christians and churches that are especially resolved to be holy And so honor God by their zealous devotion. And that's great, of course, in and of itself. But I've noticed that oftentimes their primary, almost exclusive focus tends to be to speak of how we, as Christians, must be soldiers for Christ, servants of Christ, approved workmen of God, Vessels of service to be poured out for his glory. Martyrs, sufferers. Again, yes, that's all biblical. But I've noticed that seldom do they talk of being a child of God. 
Yes, it's all good that we must be soldiers for Christ, that we must be servants of Christ. But what about, not what we must be, but what we are. Children of God. And the wonder and awe of being beloved by one who is so holy and transcendent, yet he calls us even our Father, and he means it. And I find myself wanting to say to such brothers and sisters, that's all great that you want to be zealous for God and you know, fight the battle for him and honor him. But be careful that all the emphasis on serving God and doing great things for God is not leading you into a subtle mindset of thinking that you are now in the position of providing something to God. That is heresy. God is the provider. And I sometimes fear that these well-meaning brothers and sisters, sincere in their devotion to Christ, it's almost like they're unable to sing with joy these simple words. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Almost as if it were wrong or, or less holy, or, or, or less mature, not godly to sing that. Because, no, 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 God, I must love you. No, 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 I'm, I'm here to praise and bless you. I will serve you with my life. I will die for you. Dude, can you zip it? He died for you. And wh- wh- why do you aggrandize yourself in this twisted way? Why can't you just receive His love for you. Are you too proud to sing like a little child that Jesus loves me? Is it so beneath you to have him give all of himself to you? Listen, those are the holiest words that God's church has ever sung. Because it is the doxology of the revelation of divine holy love, the very nature of God. And the triune God of heaven and earth is exalted when his children sing it, mean it, and rejoice in it. Christian, you will never be a giver to God. Even on your best days, even in your greatest sacrifices and sufferings for the sake of Christ and the gospel, you will always be the receiver of infinite love and grace eternally poured out to you, you will always be a little one. His little one. And you know who learned this lesson? The Apostle John. You know, John, the son of Zebedee, he spent all his life thinking he was strong, thinking he was somebody And he was one of those guys who was determined to prove his worth every chance he got. He was extremely ambitious of a man. And it's interesting how it carried over even into his spiritual life of following Jesus as one of the 12 disciples for the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Because remember how John, along with his brother James, they both asked Jesus if they could have the highest seat in God's kingdom. Can we we sit at, at your right hand and on your left? We, we want to be right up there. Now, it was rather presumptuous of John. But why did, he, why did he ask that? Because he had a spiritual ambition. 
Just because you have a spiritual ambition doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good ambition. John was determined to be the greatest disciple of all time. To be known as the strongest follower of Jesus. And it was actually to the point where Jesus said, "Uh, guys, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And Jesus was talking about the cross that he was heading to. But they were such boneheads that they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, give me the cup. Yeah, what is it? A Kool-Aid? You know, grape soda? Give it to me. I'll drink anything. Well, fast forward to the hour of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and death. John, along with the other disciples, was nowhere to be found. He deserted Jesus out of fear to save his own skin. He was the weakest disciple in that moment. And because of that, he was humbled to see that, in fact, he was pitifully weak and frail in faith. But, you know, from it all, John learned a lesson that he would never forget. That his worth was not and could not be based on his love for Jesus. But that it must rest on Jesus' enduring love for him. Enduring even through all of John's failure, his shame, his guilt. Which is why when you read the Gospel of John, every time John is supposed to be mentioned because he's there and we know that John's talking about himself because when you read the other Gospels, they describe in the same parallel account, they mention John by name, but John, he never uses his name to refer to himself. He once lived to make a name for himself, but in his Gospel, he never uses his own name. But every time he refers to himself, he calls himself only by this. The disciple whom Jesus loved. We can imagine that every mention of himself only sounded the tune of John singing in his heart. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones like me, to him belong. I am weak, but thanks be to God, he is strong. John learned what he really was before God. Just a little one, a little child. And perhaps that's why John was the only one who recorded Jesus addressing his disciples in this way. Little children. That's in John chapter 13. In the upper room discourse, Jesus said to them, Little children, I'm here with you for a little little bit longer. John never forgot those words. And evidently, it impressed such a deep mark on his soul that, that Jesus would call him that so affectionately that John even learned to imitate it later in his first letter. Have you noticed when you read 1 John how many times John repeatedly addresses his readers as little children? He sounds just like Jesus. And I think John did that to urge believers to learn his lesson what we really are before God. Nothing but frail little infants, yet beloved by Him. Make no mistake, the Apostle John served his Lord with all his life for the rest of his days, even at great cost. 
He gave everything for the sake of the gospel. But his life testifies to this, that great service to God comes from knowing oneself to be but a little child of his, receiving everything from him. He who is forgiven much, Jesus said, loves much. And in the same vein, he who receives much love from Christ renders much love unto Christ. May God help us to humbly receive his immeasurable love to us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, thank you for these words that you have by your spirit inspired and recorded for us. Because it's in these words in Luke chapter 18 that we hear our Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, but child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to embrace our weakness, to embrace our lowliness, our baseness, as it were, and to find all of our comfort and rest in who Christ is. We thank you for blessing your church with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in it, we are reminded that Jesus is the one who gave everything to us and that he has instituted this bread and cup to be taken so as to teach us the rhythms of grace, to exercise the motions of always receiving from him. Oh Lord, we ask that you would take this ordinary bread and cup and set it apart to strengthen our faith and to strengthen it to the stature of a little infant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.